All right, turn with me to Leviticus chapter 23. We're continuing the series to live in the presence of God. And today we're going to look at the second part of Leviticus chapter 23. And so we're talking about God's appointed times. Now we began this chapter last week looking at the feasts or the festivals that God gave to Israel. And these are the ones that um, they regulate Israel's calendar. The weekly Sabbath, the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Firstfruits. We saw how those feasts point forward to Jesus. And they're fulfilled then in the events of Holy Week, in Jesus' death and resurrection. And today, we're going to finish that chapter with four more feasts. The Feast of Weeks, which is also called Pentecost. The Feast of Trumpets. The Day of Atonement and the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles. So let's pick it up in verse 15. And here we're talking about the Feast of Weeks. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven as firstfruits to the Lord. And you shall present with the bread seven lambs, a year old without blemish, and one bull from the herd, and two rams. They shall be a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their drink offerings, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And you shall offer one male goat for a sin offering, two male lambs, a year old, as a sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the firstfruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall make proclamation on the same day. You shall hold a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. It is a statute forever in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. All right. So at a basic level, this feast is a celebration of the spring harvest. It demonstrates gratitude to God for the blessings of the harvest. And we've said before that the number seven is the number of fullness or completeness, perfection. This feast takes place after the seventh seven from the Feast of Firstfruits. So seven days in a week and seven weeks, it's the fullness of fullness. By the time of Jesus, the Feast of Weeks had come to be closely associated with the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Now that's really important to understand. Um, when we understand the significance of the Feast of Weeks. Passover took place, we saw last week, on the 14th of the month of Nisan. And then Exodus 19 tells us that on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. Then there's a couple of days of Moses going up and down the mountain, meeting with God and bringing others back up the mountain with him. So the Bible doesn't give us an exact number here, but it's right around 50 days from Passover to the giving of the law at Sinai. So the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, was understood as not only God giving the blessing of the harvest, but also God giving the blessing of his law. It's important to keep in mind. Now in the New Testament, after Jesus ascends back into heaven, Acts 2 tells us what happened at Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. Acts 2 says that when the day of Pentecost arrived, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where the disciples were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So on Mount Sinai, there were loud storm sounds and fire and God descends on the mountain. Now on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, there are loud sounds of wind and there's tongues of fire and the Holy Spirit descends on them. 
Later, Paul explains to us that the Spirit of God is like the law, but written on our hearts. At Sinai, God gave the blessing of the law. At Pentecost, in Acts 2, Jesus poured out the blessing of the Spirit. Let me give you another parallel. As soon as the law was given at Mount Sinai, when Moses came down the mountain, you remember what the people were doing? They were breaking the law already. They're worshiping the golden calf. And Moses tells the Levites to take swords and kill those who are committing this sin. Exodus 32, verse 28 tells us that that day about 3,000 of the people fell. Then at Pentecost in Acts 2, Peter preached a sermon calling for repentance and faith in Jesus. And what happened? Acts 2 verse 41 says, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Paul writes later to the Corinthians about the law and the spirit, and he says, The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Here's another scripture passage to think about. And as I read this one for you, Isaiah 2, 2 and 3, keep in mind that Jesus said he's the true temple. And he said that if he was lifted up, he would draw all men to himself. Here's Isaiah 2, 2 and 3. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord, that's the temple, so that's Jesus, shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, let us come, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law, now in the person of the Holy Spirit, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So Jesus, the true temple, now draws men to himself from all nations. The disciples are speaking in the tongues of nations at Pentecost. And he gives his law, his teaching, through the giving of the Spirit. And this happens on the Feast of Pentecost, mirroring the giving of the law at Sinai. So as you think about this idea of all the nations hearing the good news, Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 24. Remember, in Matthew 24, this is the Olivet Discourse, he's pronouncing judgment on the Jewish nation and particularly on Jerusalem and the temple. And Matthew 24, 14 says, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. The end in that verse, is the end of the Jewish temple and the Jewish age. So did the gospel get proclaimed throughout the whole world? Well, the gospel is proclaimed at Pentecost in the tongues of the nations. So those people all take it back to their nations. And listen to what Paul says has already happened Before 70 AD, when the temple is destroyed, during the lifetime of the disciples, listen to what Paul says. Colossians 1, 5 and 6. The gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. Or verse 23, the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Or Romans 1, 8, your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Or Romans 10, 18, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. The beginning of that process is Acts 2, Pentecost, as Jesus pours out the Spirit and the disciples preach the gospel in the tongues of the nations so that all nations can come to Jesus. Now, let me just summarize briefly, kind of pointing to us today, we too have received the blessing of God's law and we've received the blessing of God's spirit and like the disciples, we too proclaim the good news of Jesus' kingdom in the world. Let's pause that thought there and let's move on to the Feast of Trumpets. So look with me at Leviticus 23, verses 23 to 25. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest 
a memorial proclaimed with blasts of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. All right, so if you just read those verses, we don't get any details here about the significance of the Feast of Trumpets. But throughout Scripture, trumpets are an announcement. They call the people together, and they're often associated with an announcement of God's judgment. The trumpet is a warning of impending judgment, coming judgment. Listen to what Ezekiel 33 verses 1 through 5 says. This is a good description of how God explains that the trumpet is a warning of judgment coming, a warning that should be heeded. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, speak to your people and say to them, if I bring a sword upon a land and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. So the trumpet is a warning of judgment. Now there were trumpet blasts at Mount Sinai as God gave the law. Why? Because the law is impending judgment. The people will not measure up. So the trumpet's a warning. Sometimes this coming judgment is spoken of in the Bible under the name of the day of the Lord. Turn with me to Joel chapter 2. I want you to see this for yourself. Joel's one of the minor prophets, one of the smaller books toward the end of the Old Testament. So after the major prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, you'll find Hosea and then Joel. Okay, so Joel chapter 2. All right, and if you're in Joel chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 1. And by the way, when we get towards the end, you're going to hear verses that Peter quotes at Pentecost. So this is kind of all coming full circle here. But Joel 2, starting in verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Okay, so the trumpet here is a warning that judgment is coming. And this section goes on to describe what I believe is the Roman army, described as God's army. But look down with me towards the end of that section at verses 10 and 11. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. By the way, that's standard language for God's judgment on a nation. When God judged Babylon, it was described the exact same way. The stars and the heavenly bodies represent earthly powers. So the sun and moon didn't actually go dark when Babylon was judged. That's just descriptive language to talk about how unexpected and drastic the events are. Look at verse 11. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? So, this coming day of the Lord is a day of dreadful judgment. Now keep reading, verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. So the warning trumpet is also a call to repentance. Look down at verse 15. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Boy, that sounds a lot like the Feast of Trumpets. A gathering of the people at the trumpet blast. A warning of coming judgment. Now in verses 18 to 27, we see that there will be some who experience God's mercy 
even after he sends judgment. And then verses 28 to 32, and this is where we begin the part that Peter quotes on the day of Pentecost. Verse 28, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So this is what Peter says is happening in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. He says, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. So the Spirit is poured out on people from all nations, which is a good thing. That's a blessing. But at the same time, Peter says, this is inaugurating a time of judgment. Blood and fire and smoke and darkness. Standard language for judgment on a nation. Which nation is being judged? Israel. As Jesus said would happen. And that judgment will finally fall in A.D. 70 as the Roman army comes in and destroys Jerusalem and the temple. And this, Peter says, is the trumpet blast of warning, as Joel 2 shows. But note the last verse there in Joel 2. There will be survivors. Who are the survivors? Those whom the Lord calls, the church, believers from all nations, Jew and Gentile who have faith in Jesus. So turn with me now over to Matthew chapter 23. I want to show you how this plays out in what Jesus says. Matthew 23. And here we're going to see Jesus giving some dire warnings. He gives seven woes. And these are the prophetic warnings, the trumpet blasts, so to speak. So if you're in Matthew 23, just look with me. We're going to skim through it here. Look at verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides. Verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Verse 29, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Were you keeping count? How many woes? Seven. This is the complete picture here that Jesus is giving. This is the final warning, so to speak. And when you come down to the end of the chapter, look at verse 37 and what he says there. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Now that's a dire warning. And their house, the temple, would be left desolate in A.D. 70 as the Roman army destroyed the temple in the Jewish age came to an end. Now the next verses, as we move into Matthew 24, look at what happens. Jesus leaves the temple. It's kind of a bad sign. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So the disciples ask him about the temple. He says, it's going to be destroyed. Not one stone left on another. And by the way, that is exactly what happened in AD 70. Verse 3. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? Now, Mount of Olives, if you're looking at the, the, the geography of the area, if you're looking at a map and you see Jerusalem, 
the temple sits on the eastern edge of Jerusalem, right on the edge of a cliff, and down into the valley there, that's the Kidron Valley, there's the Kidron River, and right up the other side, that's the Mount of Olives. So if they're on the Mount of Olives, looking across the valley, they're looking directly at the temple. So they walk out there, the disciples say, well, when are these things going to take place? These things that you've been talking about, this coming judgment, your coming in judgment, when is this going to be? Verse 4, Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. They'll lead many astray. And you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So kind of like Peter said, that this is what Joel talked about, the day of the Lord. He's announcing the arrival of it. It's, this is the beginning, Jesus says, but there's, there's time before that final judgment comes, okay? And then Jesus says, that they ask him when these things will take place. Jesus says, look down, just skip down for a minute to verse 34. Matthew 24, verse 34. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Jesus says this will happen within this generation. And by the way, in this passage, he goes on to quote the same kind of language that Joel does. The sun and moon darkened and stars falling from the heavens. The language of God's judgment on the nation. Now look at verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the heaven, powers of the heaven will be shaken. That's that language that we're talking about, this language of judgment. So, the way that Jesus says this, there's a couple of things for us to note, to take note of. First of all, there will be survivors to this judgment that he's talking about. Okay? Look at, um, look at verses 15 and 16. We looked at verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Then the end will come. Then look at verses 15 and 16. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. How do you escape this coming judgment? You flee to the mountains around Jerusalem. You flee to the mountains in Judea. So, there will be some who survive, kind of like what Joel 2 said. Those who survive, those who remain, will be the ones called holy to the Lord. So this is a very, what Jesus is talking about, is a very local event. Those who are in Judea should flee to the mountains. You have this question, you read this language, and you go, well, what is the abomination of desolation, right? And there's been all kinds of books that suggest exactly what it is, and there's one really simple way to understand what that is talking about, and that is to look at the parallel passage when Luke records this event. Because Luke is writing for a different kind of audience, and he just puts it in different language. So let me just show you this. It's the same exact section, and it's the same language. He just explains what that abomination of desolation is. But when you see, and Matthew says the abomination of desolation, Luke says, Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. So where is the judgment falling? It's falling on Jerusalem. How do you escape it? Get out of Jerusalem. Go out into the mountains. So the abomination of desolation that Matthew's talking about, that is Jerusalem surrounded by the Roman army. It's the idea that Gentile armies are now going to invade and come right into the temple, right into the Holy of Holies, and they're going to tear the whole thing down. Okay? Now, who is likely to heed Jesus' warning? Those who believe Jesus, his followers, Christians. So the Christians who are in Jerusalem in the years leading up to AD 70, when they start to see this and the Roman army is coming and they realize this is the moment, this is what Jesus was talking about, what do they do? They get out of Dodge. 
right? They head out of Jerusalem. And this is why, by and large, the Christians survived that event. Because they listened to what Jesus said. They were the survivors, like Joel 2 talked about, like Jesus talks about. They're the ones called holy to the Lord. They obeyed his word. And it all happens within 40 years, which, by the way, biblically, that's a generation of Jesus' warning. Remember what Jesus said in verse 34, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, let me connect this back to what we were just talking about with the Feast of Weeks. We saw in the Feast of Weeks that the harvest, it's a celebration of harvest, but that harvest involves all the nations. At Pentecost, the Spirit is poured out on people from all nations. They go back with the gospel message, right? The giving of the Spirit mirrors the giving of the law. And when the Spirit comes at Pentecost, people from all nations hear the good news, they take it home with them, and Paul says, the gospel has gone out into all the world. Now, some people think that the idea of the gospel going to all the world is something that takes thousands of years, despite Paul having said that it was accomplished, and that once every people group has heard, then Jesus will come, the second coming. It is true that there's a second coming, that Jesus is coming back, but that's not what this is talking about. This, think about this. In Matthew 10, Jesus gives instructions to his disciples. He says, you're going to go out and you're going to spread the good news of the kingdom. But he says this. He says, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. This is talking about his coming in judgment. Jesus dies, rises from the dead. He ascends into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father, ruling and reigning. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He pours out the Spirit. Jo Peter says, this is what Joel was talking about. This is what Jesus was warning about. This is happening now. So hold these two together in your mind. Number one, the, go the gospel will go to all nations before Jesus comes. And two, there won't even be enough time to take the gospel to all the towns and cities of Israel before Jesus comes. This coming of Jesus is his coming in judgment, as he foretold, judgment on the Jewish nation for their unbelief and their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. It's the judgment that happened in AD 70. It's the Roman army destroying Jerusalem and the temple, and it's the end of the Jewish age. Now, there is coming a future judgment. Hebrews 9 tells us that it's appointed to man once to die and after this the judgment. John writes, if we have faith in Jesus and his love is shown in us, then we can have confidence for the day of judgment. And Paul writes in Romans 5 that since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And then he goes on to say in Romans 8 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the Feast of Trumpets reminds us of God's judgment. But for believers, that judgment has already been taken by Christ. Let's move on to the Day of Atonement. So we're in Leviticus 23 and we're looking at beginning in verse 26. The Day of Atonement. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, now on the 10th day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord and you shall not do any work on that very day for it is a day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people and whoever does any work on that very day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall not do any work. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourselves. On the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening, from evening to evening, shall you keep your Sabbath. Now, I'll be brief here for two reasons. Number one, talking about the Sabbath. We've already talked about it some. We're going to come back to it again next week. And the Day of Atonement, we really covered this in detail back in Leviticus 16. So let me just kind of summarize. The central part of the Day of Atonement ritual involves the two goats, 
You may remember this. One goat was slaughtered and its blood was brought into the Holy of Holies to cleanse that place and then the holy place and then the altar and the cleansing moves out from God's presence out into the rest of the camp. The second goat symbolically takes the sins of the people on itself and then it's sent out into the wilderness. And the judgment that fell on those goats instead of the people happened nine days after the Feast of Trumpets. Trumpets is a warning of judgment. And then on the Day of Atonement, judgment falls on the substitute. So the Day of Atonement tells us that God's people may enter God's presence when they come by the blood of a perfect representative, a perfect substitute. And that perfect representative carries our sins far away. And of course, that picture is pointing to Jesus. In his death on the cross, Jesus dies as our substitute. He takes the penalty for our sin on himself. He carries our sin to the grave, like we saw in the Feast of Unleavened Bread last week. He presents his own blood in God's presence, opening the way for us to come into God's presence if we are in Christ. He is both the sacrifice and the high priest who brings it. And when we have faith in Christ, our sins are removed and we're welcomed into God's presence. Psalm 103 says that as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. How far is the east from the west? Well, east is one direction as far as you can go and west is another direction as far as you can go. They're infinitely far away. That's what he does with our sins. Jesus now serves as our advocate and intercessor, our representative in God's presence He defends us against accusations because the penalty of our sin has been paid and he ushers us into God's presence by his blood. That's the day of atonement. The final feast in Leviticus 23 is the feast of booths or tabernacles, a temporary dwelling. So let's look at verses 33 through 44 now. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, on the 15th day of this seventh month and for seven days is the feast of booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as times of holy convocation for presenting to the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings, and grain offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings, each on its proper day, besides the Lord's Sabbaths, and besides your gifts, and beside all your vow offerings, and besides all your freewill offerings, which you give to the Lord. On the fifteenth day of the month, of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, You shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest. On the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, boughs of leafy trees, and the willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Thus Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feasts of the Lord. So the feast of booths is sometimes called the feast of tabernacles. That just means to dwell. It's a dwelling place. It's a temporary dwelling place. During the Feast of Booths, the Jews built booths, temporary huts made from branches of fruit trees and other kinds of branches, and they lived in them for a week. Now in Jerusalem, they're usually built on the roof of the house because they didn't want to clog up the streets. It was a reminder of their time in the wilderness before they arrived in their permanent home in the land. And the purpose was to remind them of God's provision for them during that time. So just like God's house during that time was the tabernacle, a temporary dwelling on his way to the temple, which would be permanent. So the Israelites dwelled in permanent, or excuse me, temporary dwellings on their way to the permanent dwelling in the land. 
And this feast was to be a time of rejoicing. Joy is not dependent on circumstances or permanence. That's not where the people were to find their security. Instead, their security, their confidence, their joy came from the fact that they served the Lord. And he provided for all of their needs throughout their whole time in the wilderness. The Feast of Booths was five days after the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was what? It was God's provision for the people of their greatest need, being made right with God, dealing with their sin. So the Feast of Booths comes on the heels of the Day of Atonement. It's a rejoicing for all of God's provision for his people, beginning with salvation. Now there were two central rituals to the Feast of Booths in Jesus' day. The water-pouring ritual and the illumination of the temple courts. The water ritual spoke to the need for water for the harvest to be plentiful. On the first morning of the feast, a priest carrying a golden pitcher led a procession, it was like a parade, from the temple courts down to the pool of Siloam, accompanied by music. And then they got to the pool of Siloam, they took the golden pitcher and they drew water out of the pool of Siloam and then they processed back up to the temple. And they arrived back at the temple just in time for the morning sacrifice. They're joined by another priest who brought wine and then the water and the wine were poured out in basins on the southwest corner of the altar in the temple court. And the people, while they were doing that, the people were chanting Isaiah chapter 12 and verse 3. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And then they would all sing Psalms 113 through 118. And when they got to Psalm 118 verse 25, they would repeat that, that verse as the priests marched around the altar. Psalm 118.25 says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. So the ceremony is repeated each of the seven days of the feast. And then on the seventh day, they marched around the altar seven times. That should remind you of something from the Old Testament. It should remind you of the battle of Jericho. At the end of their wilderness wandering, when they finally now come into the promised land, God gives them salvation as they march around and God's the one who knocks down the walls and wins the battle for them. Now the other ritual, the illumination of the temple courts, involved four very large golden candlesticks with golden bowls and they're standing in the court of the women in the temple area. And so there's four ladders that are put up to these candlesticks and four young men from the priestly families would climb up there and they would fill it with oil and they would have a wick in there that was actually made from old garments of the priests and they would light those four golden candlesticks and it would light up the entire area. This is a nightly ceremony during the Feast of Booths and this happens during a time of year as we're getting into the fall where the light is disappearing. And so the need for light is becoming more and more apparent. And the Mishnah says that there was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that did not reflect the light of the court of women. So the light from the temple symbolized the glory of God's presence shining out from his temple over all the people. It calls to mind Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 2. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Now, when you get to the Gospel of John, John tells us as he introduces Jesus in chapter 1 that Jesus tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us. By becoming a man, Jesus was taking on temporary housing. One day, his body would be glorified, and then it's permanent, but that unglorified state is temporary housing for Jesus. As John continues his story in his gospel, he uses the feasts of Israel to help us understand what Jesus says about himself. When you get to John chapter 7, it's the time of the Feast of Booths. And here's what John says. John 7, starting in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, 
If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And the his there, his heart, that's Jesus. So Jesus is the source of that living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So when would that happen? When would the spirit be given? Day of Pentecost. It's going to, the spirit's going to be poured out. So on the seventh day of the feast, the water is being poured out for the final time and the crowd is chanting, save us, we pray, O Lord. And Jesus says in a loud voice, I'm the source of living water. He's the one who will provide salvation and life. And then as John's account continues in chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And when Jesus says this, the Pharisees respond, you can't testify on your own behalf. You need two witnesses to prove what you're saying. And Jesus says, I can be a witness because the Father himself joins me in testifying to who I am. Now that discussion continues for a while. And then you get to chapter 9. And in chapter 9, Jesus does something. Jesus meets a blind man. And he says that the man is blind for this purpose so that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, what God is about to do in this blind man will testify to what Jesus has been saying about himself. Now remember that Jesus said the father joins him in testifying to who he is. So Jesus says again here in front of the blind man, I am the light of the world. Then he spits on the ground makes mud, puts the mud on the man's eyes, and he tells the man, go wash where? In the pool of Siloam. So the man goes to the pool of Siloam where the golden pitcher had just been filled with water for the water pouring ritual. He washes his eyes in the water and his eyes are filled now with light. Water and light testifying to who Jesus is. Let me take you to one more Old Testament passage that pulls together some of these themes for us. This is Isaiah chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, and we're just going to take it a verse at a time. So just follow along here. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. So we have branch, and we have fruit, themes from the Feast of Booths, and we have the survivors of Israel. There's that language of those who are going to survive the, the coming judgment. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. Okay, what does it mean to be left in Zion or remaining in Jerusalem? Remaining after what? Next verse. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. So judgment is going to fall. It's coming, this judgment on Jerusalem. And those who survive are called holy. They're recorded for life. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory, there will be a canopy, a covering, like booths. That language recalls Israel wandering in the wilderness with God leading them in a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. And the booth is a picture of God's protection of his people. This is pulling all of these themes together when we read the prophets and we see then what Jesus is doing. Now, when the Jews returned to the promised land after the exile, Ezra and Nehemiah were leading them. And once Jerusalem had been restored and they'd been settled in the city, they gathered by the water gate and they asked Ezra to read from the book of the law of Moses. And Ezra read and several of the Levites helped the people to understand what was being read. And when they heard God's law, how did the people respond? They wept. 
because they had not known or kept God's law while they were in exile. But what's truly remarkable is the response of Ezra and Nehemiah. They told the people, this day is holy to the Lord, your God. Do not mourn or weep. Then they said, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And then the next day, as the leaders come together to study the law, they realize that since it's the seventh month, it's the time for the Feast of Booths. So they gathered what was needed and they celebrated the feast for the first time in hundreds of years. And Nehemiah 8 says that there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. Now, I think this story is helpful and here's why. When the law was read, the people wept. Why? Because they had not lived up to God's standard. But then Ezra and Nehemiah told them that God's desire was that they rejoice. Recovering the law of God was recovering a great blessing that God had given. And the celebration of this was a time of rejoicing. That's how it should be for you and me when we read God's word. That's how it should be for us when we gather like we are this morning to hear God's word. It convicts us of sin because we don't measure up to God's standard. But it's also cause for rejoicing because of God's provision for us in Christ. Summary here. The Feast of Weeks was a time of gratitude for God's blessing of the harvest and for the blessing of receiving God's law. The Feast of Trumpets was a reminder of the reality of God's judgment. The Day of Atonement proclaimed that sins could be carried away and God's people could come into his presence. And the Feast of Booths, through its temporary housing in booths and the rituals of water and light, was a reminder of God's provision for his people in the desert. Now, think of how those feasts walk us through Israel's story. The Feast of Weeks, God gives the blessing of his law at Sinai. The Feast of Trumpets, the arrival of the law at Sinai is a blessing, but it's also a judgment as seen in the judgment on those who worship the golden calf. The Day of Atonement, because of Israel's sin, the tabernacle had to be cleansed and the people's sin dealt with. The two goats symbolize how God dealt with their sin and enabled them to come into his presence. And the Feast of Booths, God provided for the people's need in the atonement and he met their needs and protected them as they traveled in the desert. Now we saw last week how the first four feasts in Leviticus 23 were fulfilled by Jesus during Holy Week. The Sabbath rest is achieved by what Christ did on the cross, giving us rest from our works. And the two days after Jesus' death were Sabbaths. The Passover, Jesus is our Passover lamb who dies in our place as our substitute so that we can escape God's judgment. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, Jesus takes our sin with him to the grave and the kingdom of God is growing now by the power of the Spirit. The Feast of Firstfruits, Jesus' resurrection is the firstfruits of our resurrection. Because Jesus was raised, we can have confidence that we will be too. The four feasts we've added this week continue the story of Jesus beyond Holy Week. The Feast of Weeks, at Pentecost, Jesus poured out the blessing of the Spirit. The Feast of Trumpets, Jesus gave warnings of coming judgment. And Peter said that the events of Pentecost signified that the day of the Lord, spoken of by Joel, was now arriving. Pentecost was the trumpet blast, and the fall of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70 was the judgment that Jesus had predicted. The Day of Atonement, those who would survive the coming judgment were those who had faith in Jesus, those whose sins were atoned for. And this is God's greatest provision for his people. 
and the Feast of Booths, God would continue to provide for his people who were in temporary housing. Temporary because their ultimate citizenship is in heaven and they're bound for the promised land of the new heaven and the new earth. As we've gone through these, have you noticed how the story that the feasts tell, which is the story of Israel, and it's the story of Jesus, is our story as well? If you're a believer, God has given you a Sabbath rest from your works. Because Jesus, your Passover lamb, has died in your place, you no longer face God's judgment. Jesus takes your sin to the grave, unleavened bread. And you're called now to live not in the influence of the world, but under the influence of the Spirit, out with the old leaven, in with the new. Because Jesus has been raised, first fruits, you can have confidence that you too will be raised. You've received the blessing of the Spirit of God, Pentecost. And while it's appointed to man once to die and to face the judgment, trumpets, you will survive that judgment because your sins have been atoned for, the day of atonement, by Jesus. So you rejoice now at the provision of God, the Feast of Booths, the provision of your greatest need, salvation, and the provision of all you need during this temporary life on your way to your permanent home in God's presence. All of this should show how central Jesus is to your life and mine. It should be reason for confidence, reason for rejoicing, reason for worship. So we rejoice that Christ has fulfilled God's appointed times. And because he has, we have confidence and joy. Would you pray with me? Lord, on that fourth day of creation, when you placed the sun, moon, and stars in their places for your appointed times, You had this incredible, wonderful plan laid out already, written in the heavens, of how you would redeem and rescue your people. And we are thankful that Jesus came and carried out that plan. We rejoice in what he's accomplished on our behalf. And we ask that you would enable us to live in the confidence that comes from that as we face whatever it is that we face during this temporary life, on our way to live in your presence forever. We pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.